Hello and welcome to series two of the Facing Up podcast with me, Luke Grenfell Shaw. In 2018, I was diagnosed with stage four cancer. And since then, I've made it my mission to make the most of each and every passing day. This has led me to cycle on a tandem from Bristol to Beijing. COVID got in the way and I had to take a break, but now I'm back on the road. Before you hear this episode's conversation, here's a little snippet of what has happened to me on my travels over the last week. I recently spent a wonderful period of time in Chisinau, the capital of Moldova, and there I was very fortunate to meet a lot of wonderful people which give me cause for optimism that the country might be heading in a more positive direction, having had a very difficult past. Now, corruption is one of the things that has plagued Moldova. And so it was with some interest that I heard about a guy who was trying to tackle corruption in a slightly different way. This is a very exciting and special episode, and I'm recording it from the tap house in the very heart of Chisinau. Now, just one door down is a place called the Smokehouse. We're in a craft beer bar right now, which is perhaps the last thing you'd expect from the capital of Moldova. And the Smokehouse, which is just one door down, is an American ribs place. And it's where I went on the first night with my host, Chris. And apart from amazing beer and food there, he told me the place had a special story that the founders, Dave Smith and Vlad Shiliansky, decided that they would treat it as something of a social experiment. Now, in the UK, this doesn't sound like much, but in Moldova, it's quite significant. They said that they would not pay a single bribe to set this place up and to keep it going. And I just thought this sounded like a very interesting challenge. And so I'm now very excited to be speaking to Dave in the tap room for the Facing Up podcast. Dave, thank you so much for joining. Uh, Thanks for asking me to. Happy to be here. Tell me, what got you started on this idea of setting up your own ribs, American-style food place in Chisinau? It's not the obvious choice. Yeah, it's far from the obvious choice. So it goes back a few years. I actually came to Moldova in 2012. And at that time, I was a Peace Corps volunteer, meaning I was a volunteer with the U.S. government program. Worked with some local government, different agencies, but I also worked with a lot of small business development. And me and other volunteers worked with people who were opening new businesses here, trying to start new small business. And by and large, uh, we were not very successful. And after about two, it wasn't quite two years, but about two years in, myself and some friends were sitting around a table, uh, had, had some beers late into the night and we were talking. And we are talking about the work we had done. And we were lived in different small towns and communities across Moldova. And we found we had a commonality, which was that we had worked with local budding entrepreneurs, people in a lot of cases with good ideas, not only good ideas, but good uh, business plans, preparation for execution. In some cases, even big box stores that said, I'll buy whatever you make. I love it. Just give it to me. And, uh, and they didn't start the business. Mostly they migrated, went to Western Europe or Russia, worked construction or some smaller job. And we were talking amongst the volunteers that night and said, what, what the hell happened? And the what the hell happened was corruption. It was all corruption. And it was both the perception of how bad the market is, how bureaucratic it is, and how corrupt it is, 
and the reality, which is it's very hard to do business here. So in that conversation, woke up the next day, you know, uh, thought about it, and started talking to my friend Matt, and he said, well, shit, we see a lot of opportunity here. What if we did it? What if we opened a business? And uh, it wasn't just kind of like masochistic and like, let's, let's do something insane that will be ultimately horrifically painful, but it was two angles. One, we thought there's actually a ton of great opportunity in Moldova. Uh, at the time, the whole, se- well, all of the business sector was far less developed from IT to restaurants to whatever. Uh, but also, the more we looked at it, we thought, uh, in retrospect, very incorrectly, that the problem of corruption was more about perception and that there was a, a positive change going forward and that we thought we could find a way to go through it, experience it ourselves, speak to it, both publicly and then also back to organizations like the Peace Corps, like international development groups, and say, here are where the real problems lie, because most of what's written or talked about is just Ugh, corruption. It's everywhere. It's a big problem. And it's very unspecific. And business people often don't speak about the specifics. So we wanted to do that. Six months later, uh, we had gone from the idea of just opening a business to the idea of we're going to open a restaurant barbecue restaurant and we would do it with basically two projects in parallel one would be the business business itself is for business it's uh got investors you you've got to make profit you've got to hire staff and the second one we initially called open source entrepreneurship we we created a blog and the goal was to basically speak very publicly very directly and very explicitly about the types of problems we encountered what they look like, how they affected our ability to do business, and uh, and what we thought could be the remedies for that. So that was kind of the generation in a nutshell. Mm. Well, so I was going for a, uh, for a run with a friend um, who's from Moldova. He actually studied in the UK, but he said out of his classmates, he's now back here in Moldova, mm-hmm. out of his classmates, 15 of them, 13 of them are now abroad and yep. planning to stay abroad. So that's like one thing that just to get capture the scale of so many young Moldovans are leaving the country because they don't see the job opportunities here. Yeah. So that's like absolutely something that I've now heard about. The second thing is quite interesting in terms of like how visible corruption is. Because now I was a bit surprised coming to Kishnau, you know, you've got all the cafes that will you give you a flat white that are you've got your fairy lights that are, you feel very classy and along with restaurants. The roads are rubbish in terms of the road surface, but corruption isn't one of those super obvious things. You know, you can say, oh, it's just a lesser developed country and that's because of corruption, but it's very difficult to see, ah, well, that building wouldn't have been built or that road would be better if there wasn't corruption. So identifying corruption, what you're saying there is very interesting. It was sort of, you know, it's just this thing. You were trying to do this without any bribes, without any kickbacks, without playing the system. What was the first problem you ran into? Well, all right, so let me first give you kind of a, a helicopter view here. Um, if you want to tour of buildings that wouldn't be built without corruption, I can walk you around town. But in, in general, in general, what we're talking about are systemic problems. So in a lot of cases, when I talk to people who kind of come here and they've just read the headline that corruption's a big problem, blah, 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 what they think of is something that we would think of in the West as kind of a mafia-style corruption, like a New York in the 1970s, 
you open a new brewery or business and somebody comes by and says, I'm going to get 25% off the top or I'm going to break your legs or burn your building down. That may have been, I mean, really was a problem in Moldova in the 90s. But in current Moldova, what you have is a systemic nature of this mafia uh, system. You don't have mafiosos. You don't have these criminal thugs. What you have is the state. And the state operates itself as a kind of criminal enterprise. So something that you mentioned uh, about our, our plan, we, we opened up a uh, business not to pay bribes. It's actually only half the story. The other half was we committed ourselves to pay our taxes. Uh. And these two things go very hand in hand. And the reason is most of the corruption that exists, uh, not well, there's so much, but much of the corruption that exists exists around alternative means of taxation. Meaning, if I uh, look across the street at competitor restaurants, many of them, not many, all of them, do not pay their taxes. And this is done in a couple different ways. Most of them are payroll salary tax, which is around 43% here. It's very high. Yeah. Uh, and uh, many people simply pay in cash under the table. The second is VAT taxes on restaurants is very high, uh, 15% now because of the crisis, but at the beginning of the year, 20% compared to 4% in Romania. So people do not, as they call it, fiscalize their checks, so they don't put it into the official monitor and um, pay the taxes. Very, it just doesn't show up on the system, doesn't right? doesn't show up on the system. So, your, the, the overheads, the, the running cost of revenue exactly. looks a lot lower than it actually is because everything's handled in cash and... It, 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 exactly right. And so between those two things, you've got a, a system where many of our competitors are paying what is, uh, as I am told, the standard right now of 70-30 splits. So 70% of the cash that comes in the door is not accounted for, 30% is. Um, dependent on how enforcing the government it is at any given time, that percentage may change. So but you can read percentage to not be accounted for. Absolutely massive. And if you, you really think of it with a high taxation uh, sector, like we are in Horeca, but in the restaurant business, it is a huge competitive disadvantage to an honest business. And so systemically, what you've got going on is honest businesses are punished because they're honest. But why aren't the other ones being punished? Well, couple of reasons, but the easiest one to understand is that in the US, in the UK, in Western Europe, when the tax inspector comes in and they want to know what are in your books, what have you done, what they're investigating you for, auditing you for is fraud. So fraud is illegal, fraud is punished, hopefully by fines or jail time. Moldova does not punish fraud. It does not look for fraud. They punish mistakes. And so, in a wildly complex system, dotting the T's, crossing the I's, you will be punished for mistakes. You will not be punished for fraud. So I'll give you an example. So the last time we got uh, in trouble on, on tax matters, and granted we pay all our taxes, so it shouldn't really be ever, was uh, we got a, they call it a control, it's an inspection. And they came in and they created a lot of trouble for us because we were now two weeks into daylight savings time. And our computer had made the time change, but the printer that makes the receipts for the customers had not. 
So the printer printed one hour difference on the, the receipt. And so we were fined. Now I know one block from here, there are restaurants that pay zero in their taxes because they're politically connected and other things. They don't have these problems. But we're being fined for a one hour difference on the printer. And th so this is the, like I said, they're not interested in fraud because fraud is everywhere. Mm. They're interested in mistakes. Now, what does this mean, really? What this really means is that systemically, the tax authorities, they're looking at fraud uh, as a bribery opportunity. They can go in there and they say, oh, you've done all these terrible things. And you say, how do I make it right? And a little money changes hands. And how how much? Just give us an idea. We uh, well, we've never crossed the line on any kind of tax fraud, so I don't know. But when, I, when it comes to small mistakes, small yeah. errors, you can be talking about crimes as low as 5 or $10. Mm -hmm. To pay, pay off. To pay off some small okay. official who's looking for trouble. In, in other cases, you could be talking about... Ten thousand, they said five hundred dollars, and in other businesses, I can speak a little bit to how we now work with and represent a lot of small businesses across the country. But you can be talking about payoffs as high as thirty, forty, fifty thousand euros, dependent on the industry you're in, dependent on how exposed you are, and dependent on what your defenses are. Um, so really, at the end of the day, what Smokehouse is, is uh, a walled garden of defenses. <laughs> so when we decide we're not paying taxes or, or bribes, what we ended up doing over time, not very consciously, is building up a wall. And that wall is now quite firm, mm -hmm. but it means that now people think twice before they come and mess with us, right. because they know we will punch back. But how do you punch back as a small independent business against the, the state, you know, a system which is geared against you? Yeah, it's actually really interesting. Um, so we've had a couple really big fights that have been public. And, uh, and I can, in broad terms, explain what they, what they look like. Uh, quite horrific. One was about a, a local official came in, and what they told us they were going to do is strip us of our license. So they were going to strip us of our license, meaning it was up for renewal and they wouldn't renew it. And when asked why, they said, oh, it's not a big deal. Like, it seems like a big deal to me. You're taking my business license away. They said, no, it's not a big deal because the only person who will give you trouble for not having a business license is me. And I will look after you. And I will come in here with my friends sometimes and we'll have some drinks and whatever. And obviously that's all in the house. But in the, at the end of the day, no real trouble will befall you because... I'm on your side. I'm on your side, right? <laughs> wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. So in that particular case, we dealt with that official as much as we could. We went over him to his boss and we were... As explicit as we were comfortable, and I, in retrospect, I wish I had been more explicit, to simply tell them, I've Googled you. I know how corrupt you are. Have you Googled me? Because, <laughs> like, you want to start this fight? We've been in the press now for years in fights like this. Do you really want this? And uh, unfortunately, either they didn't do their due diligence or they thought that they could push us around like everybody else. And so what happened was... We went from politely negotiating with this nutbag to suddenly fire all cannons, so to speak. And what it was, we, we sent out press releases to anyone who would listen, which was a lot of people, but also we set up a large social media campaign and we explained that we were being shut down because of a corrupt official 
here's what they wanted, here's what they're doing, here's where they are. Uh, we don't generally name names. We try to make everything as systemic as possible. So this person was allowed to do this because they had no accountability or rules as to why they could or could not renew our business license. They just had total discretion. So we made that more of the case. Uh, we wound up hanging these big black posters with white letters, fuck corruption, all through the restaurant as we walked up to the license being stripped and then worked then for about three weeks on a, a super abbreviated license. We had to close very early in the evening and other problems mm-hmm. until then it came to a head. And the reason it came to a head was that public opinion in Moldova is very anti-corruption. People hate this. They see it every day. And, you you know, we think of this as businesses, but it's people in their lives. You want to go to the doctor, you've got to bribe the doctors. You want to get your kid into school, you got to bribe the teachers. You want your kid to have a good grade, you got to bribe the teacher to keep the grades. It is everywhere, and people hate it. So once you get the story out, people get very frustrated. They, they join your side. Uh, we've kept a squeaky clean record over the years for the very purpose of being able to talk about these issues. And uh, so once we did this, it, it did come to a head. The mayor actually had to trot down here with a bunch of counselors, news. We had the official that we were fighting bribed all these elderly ladies to come out and yell, Americans are Satan. Uh, it was a crazy little street confrontation, but it ended where they said, yeah, you've got every right to have a business license like mm-hmm. you had for three years prior. Also, those ladies, we're all buddies now. Right now, it's become very clear that in Moldova, yeah, people have spoken very publicly with the election just uh, what, three days ago yeah. of Maya Sandu, who was uh, elected to the office of president on an anti-corruption drive. What I'm kind of quite interested by is you know, when you were starting, where did the problems, you know, where do you first come into problems when you're trying to set up a business? Of course. So it depends on who you are. Um, so our first problem is that, so first of all, let me explain our business structure. We have three partners who started this company. Mm-hmm. Two of us are Americans, me and my friend Matt from Peace Corps, my um, friend Vlad. And so we got two Americans in Moldova. Now the Americans have been living here as Peace Corps volunteers for two years, but we needed to then switch over to a new visa, as uh, they called it, international investors. Uh, in the visa category. Our first fight was about that. We were immediately denied our visas on application. And because of the application, the long timetables, the time it took to to get it done, we found out when I had uh, 11 days left in the country. So I was going to be deported in 11 days. We had a company founded. We hadn't begun work remodeling. We were looking for locations and things. But suddenly, all the business planning work was dropped and we had to fight this problem. And uh, we were told quite directly that uh, the reason our visa was denied was that we needed to pay a 350 euro bribe to have the uh, pleasure of investing in Moldova. Interesting strategy. Uh, Interesting strategy, right. Um, So that process uh, was a very ugly first fight, Uh, not one we uh, dealt with in the press and as publicly. We dealt with it more behind the scenes. We worked through different people in government we could contact, other business people who were established, and we just tried to, honestly at the time we were pretty naive, we were just trying to figure out what is going on? How is this working? Why? Why, why, why? And um, 
we wound up pushing it through. The director of the organization that gives visas at the time, pretty terrible and corrupt woman, who I got the pleasure of fighting multiple times later on. We founded a small business association and we went to, to fight her for other foreign investors who were denied for very similar reasons. And then she went to prison for corruption, which was deeply satisfying. And now right. she's out. And she's working there again because okay. the government changed. So how did you get your visa? Because you you know you could have just immediately paid, you could have got your visa immediately, presumably three hundred fifty pound bribe, euro yep. bribe. So then, what is the process of actually getting it through legit means? Is it just going knocking on enough doors and just saying I'm still going to come back tomorrow until you give me <laughs> your visa? But then they could say, well, you're going in eleven days, so it's up to you. So like, how do you actually? What is the reality that leads to success? Uh, so, I don't think there are a lot of lessons to be learned from how we fought that that particular battle. Though I have a very very long series of blog posts on my, my old blog about it, uh, but I can tell you how you do fix the problem longer term. So at that time, the biggest thing we did was we called everybody. We put a lot of pressure there, and their bosses started calling them and saying, "You're kicking international investors out of the country. Like, are you high? Like, what, what are you talking about?" I met a friend years later who was at the time a member of parliament and he laughed when he met me. He's like, I heard of you. One day suddenly everybody in parliament is discussing the fact that we're deporting international investors, (laughs) which nobody knew about. And uh, and you managed to reframe it rather than you being kicked out because you weren't being given a visa. You actually sort of turned the problem around and made it public in to the politicians and saying, and then it becomes a question of it was internal. So, so later on, our other fights we've done publicly. We've mm-hmm. worked for public pressure first. Mm-hmm. At that time, though, it was simply like framing it like, what in the world is going on? But I'll give you actually an interesting example. And a couple of our initial problems, the visa and then actually registering the company, were both um, problems that have been really dialed in by the fact that you're dealing with one person. So you go into this stuffy old Soviet office, you knock on the door, they open it up, you go to a desk, some person yells at you a lot, tells you to bring papers in. For the visa, they gave you, here are the documents you need. They give you a list in Romanian, Russian, and English. The list of documents in Romanian has 11 documents. In Russian, it's 18 documents, and in English, it's 14. And so clearly, there's no consistency about what you need. Which, what, what happens when there's no consistency and no rules? You have discretion. And whenever you deal with these people, you get unlimited discretion on their part means unlimited pain on yours. So you're constantly dealing with whatever crazy thing they ask for. Now, in that office and in the office registering for business, actually, we had these problems. And since then, they've been largely resolved. Now, they haven't been resolved by political will or some firing of all the old guard or something like that. They've done it with the simplest, dumbest thing, and it's a ticket system. Ticket system is, is really such a, a strange thing to think of as a, a corruption fighting mechanism. But imagine you've got 10 deaths, and you go in and you need to apply for a business permit or a residency or whatever. And I go in and I say, residency permit today. And they print me out and say, you're a number of 52, wait and then wait, 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 ping, go to desk three, go to desk three. And they say, this is nonsense, you've brought all these papers, these are the wrong papers, come back tomorrow. Well, tomorrow I go to desk five, or desk seven. What's critical about this is, 
in the earlier iteration, when I first came here, you went to that person and they owned you. They owned your file. Mm-hmm. You could make up any nonsensical thing they wanted. Mm-hmm. But now, all of the different groups, they have to coordinate. And lacking a giant coordinated corruption conspiracy of everybody working in the office, which is not really how small petty bribery works, mm-hmm. you wind up with a system that is suddenly having to follow the rules. Because if one of them can enforce the rules, they all have to. Little problems like this are what we talk about with systemic corruption. Right. So run that past me again. If you see a different person every day, yeah. then each different person will make up a new rule of why you haven't got the, the, the right documents. Or no, no, quite the opposite. Um, right. Sorry. When you see the same person every day, what they can do is they can change the rules as much as they want for you. I because see, so you I, to the same person. You're the there. same person. And that like, same person, you. I've actually had cases where I've gone into an office and I've walked up to the free desk and the guy who's got somebody at his desk says, wait, you're mine. You'll wait till I'm done. The free desk can be for somebody else. Why? They own your account. And your account is how much you're going to pay them to get what you need. If you are automatically and randomly assigned, every petty bureaucrat needs to be on the same page with every other petty bureaucrat because the rules must be consistent and they actually become consistent from this very simple, small, weird systemization of a process. Honestly, I've seen more improvement on corruption from having ticket systems than I have in every reform-minded agenda I've seen while I'm here. (laughs) I mean, that's just almost bizarre how... How easy that could be to resolve, and yet it takes a decision from the top to force that to happen. There seems to be a really interesting element here in how public that you've been that I want to come to later. Sure. But one of the friends I have in Moldova was telling me about you know, uh, some cafe chain that was wanting something, imported six coffee machines from wherever, from Europe or something. And they got to customs, you know, so they came from Europe, they got to customs, and then the cost to pay the bribe according to this person, was so much that that just wasn't, the new business couldn't afford to pay that 25% bribe, and so the machines never even got into the country, they're probably lying in some warehouse somewhere, um, and the business never even started. So have you had problems like that? Because, I mean, there's a coffee machine here, you've got all sorts of kitchen equipment, we've got beautiful <sighs> wood charred chairs for beautiful effects. I made all of those, so uh, the coffee machine's a funny, funny case. Um, actually, a sad case because I, I don't know the story you were told, but I have an absolutely similar one, almost identical. Um, when we started up, we were buying our coffee from this uh, local entrepreneur, um, young guy, crazy guy. I mean, God, barely scraped five foot tall, wired as fuck every day. So much coffee. He came into my business one day limping, like dragging his leg up to the counter. And I'm like, what happened, dude? And he's like, I just got hit by a car. It's, you know, I don't want to talk about it. I just want a coffee. I'm like, you got hit by a car. I want a whiskey. Like, what are you talking about? Like, I, he just lived, breathed, and bled coffee. He blended us our first specific house roast of coffee. Did I meet this guy? <laughs> I, he lives in the UK now. Oh, okay. That's well, the I sad end that. of the story. But okay. yeah, absolutely fantastic dude. And yeah, he was importing coffee machines, just like you described. They got hung up in customs for a bribe. I think he could have afforded it, but I think it just broke him. And I think that was the thing that just told him, 
fuck this. I'm not doing this anymore. I'm just struggling day in and day out. And what the government doesn't take in taxes, the government takes in bribes. And he just quit. He just collapsed his con- company, left. He was newly married. And he and his wife moved to the UK. They, they started a business there and they're prosperous. And they're happy, you know, legal immigrants moved west, very happy. And he even just abandoned the coffee machines he had. He just abandoned the coffee machine he gave me. Two years later, he showed up. He's like, well, he called, actually, because he's in the UK. He's like, yeah, I just gave you a coffee machine. Do you mind sending me some money for that? And it's like, yeah, man, like 100%, you know, but what a what a messed up story. And this is, when you talk about migration in Moldova, you talk about really a couple different things. You've got people who go abroad because they want work opportunities. It's better to be a construction worker in a lot of countries than it is to be a knowledge worker in Moldova. Mm. But the other one are the entrepreneurs. Mm. And this is a really, really dangerous thing that Moldova has, which is that it systemically chases out the people who create business and opportunity. It hounds them until they go. This guy's an example. I have a lot of other ones. But eventually, you just give up. You say, why is this worth my time? I don't make money. I don't have... I don't have happiness even in doing my business because every day I wake up with fear that some other asshole is going to come in and try to take a piece out of me. And then so how have you managed to be successful? Because you said Smokehouse was founded in 2015, it's been going for five years, we're in the tap room, that's been going for three years I suppose. It seems from the outside you've been successful. Do you get up each morning and go, what on earth is going to hit me today? No. How have you managed to manage it because it sounds like so many people have not so first of all you've got to deal with a couple things right off the bat one of them is expectations you got to bind yourself up on the idea that you can lose everything in a moment's notice now in the in the covid world i think small business owners everywhere in the world have come and had to face that reality in, in a weird way we were better suited to walk into that the amount of stress i've had this year has been terrible but frankly not that much worse than some other years and the reality is if you're always if you are willing to lose your business with certain let's say constraints you've already made your peace with different outcomes and one of the ones we said early on was we will leave our business head held high for the last time having lost it rather than come to work every day knowing that somebody owns us, meaning if we're paying bribes, they own us. They can come back for more, for less, to hit us around, whatever. Head held high, I'd rather leave once than every day come in like that. Um, now, in effect, what it's, the, the, the way it's actually happened is we've built a wall. We have been very public. We've had some serious different fights. Some have been more successful than others, but in general, we've, we've survived in some prevailed and uh, I'll just give you one kind of funny example but like when we opened Tapper a couple weeks after opening I was sitting over there at the bar and in walks in this guy his greasy pencil thin curled mustache mm. and a trench coat and with this terrible comb over right. and he walks in seems like some sort of terrible second world war spy or something to, yeah, to be totally honest he was a caricature of a bad person <laughs> and he walks in and he just looks around in confusion. And this happens a lot. People like don't understand what a craft beer bar is or what they're look. What, what do they wander into? So the waiter goes to go and help him, but he hones in on our official document wall, and he goes and he finds there's a document for the Consumer Protection Agency, 
which is a hotline you can call if, if the company does something wrong. It's across the street, Consumer Protection Agency. <laughs> Not our buddies. But the, he comes and he looks at it, and he's like, this is wrong. And I'm sitting at the bar, and he tells my waiter, and the waiter tells me, he's like, this is wrong. I'm like, why? Why? Well, we used to be at this address. We've moved two doors down officially, so our address has changed. So we're not at 65 on the street, we're at 67. Mm-hmm. I'm like, okay, well, give me a marker. Right? And he's like, so no. not, not your address, but their address. Their address. Their address. So they've changed the address, so your document is now out of date. Exactly. Uh-huh. And so he says, no, 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 it's not like that. I'm going to ruin you. He's like, I. I'm going to fine you for fifteen thousand dollars, seven hundred, eight hundred dollars, or something. I'm going to fine you. I'm going to create cases. I'm going to ruin you. Absolutely, his little pencil thin mustache, greasy haired motherfucker. And he's standing there. He's looking at my waiter. My waiter. He says this in Romanian. My waiter tells me he says, "Hey, he's going to ruin us." And I just <laughs> told him, uh, "Well, tell him to call the police or get the fuck out of my business." And the waiter turns around and says, "Call the police or get the fuck out of the business." And the guy, it's very alarmed. Very confused, but he doesn't get mad. Mm. He's scared. Mm. And he looks at it, and he looks at me, and he looks at it, and he looks back and forth, and he mumbles a few things, and he wanders away. Mm-hmm. And what happened there? What happened there I thought was very interesting. First of all, people do not, these clowns don't get stood up to very often. So they're unused to it. But the second thing is they didn't realize Taproom was Smokehouse. This clown would never have wandered into Smokehouse and played this game. Right. We have built a reputation. We have uh-huh. built a wall. Mm-hmm. Once he came in here, he suddenly realized this is not some new local business. Mm-hmm. This is Smokehouse. Mm-hmm. And he realized, like, oh, I don't really want to tangle with that. And what the unfortunate end cap to this story is, why did it happen at all? Mm-hmm. What happens in November and December that facilitates bribes on a massive scale? Christmas. The guy wanted to buy Christmas gifts for his kids. And in this time of year, you have massive runs of corrupt officials coming at you all over the place. The holidays are a peak. All the different holidays. Molo has lots of them. They're a peak for people coming and looking for bribes because they want to pad up their pockets and buy gifts. Mm. It is a wildly messed up system. So one thing that is quite... has really struck me as I'm talking to you. It, one is that you've been very effective at, you refer back to this wall, you've mobilized popular opinion, you've been very vocal, probably, I guess, through social media, through the press. Now, the other thing that struck me is your accent, right? (laughs) Now, how different, it's all very well, I kind of feel for American or Brit to say, bugger off. Though I'm kind of interested, like, if it was me, I'd be like, ooh, crikey, like, maybe I'd, like, screwed up, but you are very direct. I didn't start that way. I didn't start that way. I've gotten there over time. So I guess the questions, the real question I'm asking is, it's all very well if you're the pioneer and the crusader, you can attract a lot of media attention. You can be that trailblazer. But for other businesses who don't have American, you know, and those kind of those rights, those expectations as much as anything else... And then also being able to galvanize the press behind you and say, look, we're the trailblazer. Well, what can other businesses do if you're just sort of running the mill? We've got like Armandio, I guess that's an Armani knockoff outlet across the road. Yeah. We've yeah. got a Lena Bradu accent, who knows? I'm just looking mm-hmm. out the window. We've got these small businesses. Well, what can they do to fight against this culture? So let me answer that in two parts. 
in the first part and say, I think that there is absolutely a benefit of sorts to going into these fights uh, as a foreign-owned company. Now, whether I'm speaking for us, which is rare, or my partner, Vlad, which is much more common, there is a notion that we're an American-owned company. Mostly, though, that doesn't mean that they don't want drugs from us. Often it just changes the way they, they want them. Early on, we had a strategy. It turned out very flawed. But a strategy where me and my partner, Matt, uh, I speak English and Russian, he speaks English and Romanian, and our partner Vlad speaks all three. We would go into meetings and Matt and I would pretend we didn't speak anything but English, and Vlad would speak for us. With the notion that when we spoke English and he would translate, we would try to create some kind of like foreign investor impetus and people would be serious about us, three, you know, 24-year-olds, whatever. Uh, didn't work that way. What winds up happening is the officials we talked to invariably tried to turn Vlad against us. They'd be talking to him in Russian or Romanian that we would understand and be like, hey, we can all steal from these guys. Like, you work with us. So the force of power of a foreign accent it really only matters if you're speaking for yourself. And if you are, you really have no guarantee of putting any force under the table in that. Um, it probably counts more for, uh, if you call it a willpower, and willpower not meaning other Moldovans wouldn't have it. I know many viciously honest, and I think that's a good way to say it, viciously honest uh, Moldovan companies with great willpower, but they have to draw it from somewhere. And so we, uh, me as an American, I draw it from this is how it should be. Others say this is how our country will be eventually. So there's different ways of you can decide where you want to draw your moral lines. But the core, though, there is being foreign doesn't necessarily exempt you. It just creates a different problem. Uh, but how can you fight? This is actually a really good question. It opens up something I, I'd want to talk about. We ran our blog for a couple years, and we talked very publicly and did press releases, not just when we were in a fight, but about how things were going. But we realized that wasn't enough. That is not a good way to create change. And one of the biggest reasons is because people take the wrong lesson. The lesson people have taken, many different people and international organizations and some governments, uh, the Moldovan one, but for some international governments have taken from Smokehouse, is that we're an example of the fact that you can do it right if you only try. That isn't the story. That story says the only reason people have corruption is because businesses pay bribes. That is nonsense. It doesn't understand the power dynamic. It is unfortunately very equivalent to somebody you know quoting on sexual assault victims and saying you know you know, you dress that a certain way it totally misunderstands the power dynamics involved it totally misunderstands the bad actors involved so so the second part of that question that i think is really important is that you've got to look at things again not just about who owns the company but you've got to look at what your community is. And what we've taken a, a particular view on is kind of a notion of collective security, if you will. So we founded, after about our first year as a company, what was originally called the Foreign Small Enterprise Alliance. 
And we aimed from the very beginning to be the preeminent small business association in Moldova. There were essentially none. Okay. It's an association of restaurants, which was good. There's an association of window and door makers, which was okay. But there was no small business association. There's an American Chamber of Commerce and some different things for big companies, but nothing that just represented the interests of small companies. We wanted to build something that would do that. Now, we originally called ourselves the Foreign Small Enterprise uh, Alliance because the local companies that were our founding members said, use foreign and they will respect you. And we, we basically built that. Now, we rebranded three years later as the Moldovan Small Enterprise Alliance, which in the Romanian acronym is AIA. Uh, what we've done there is a couple things. We work on lobbying advocacy work to create a better business environment and fight corruption through these systemic laws and changes. But we also create kind of a collective security system, which is that an attack on one of our members is something that every other member is I would say duty bound to respond to. It's not exactly NATO Article 5. Well, it's exactly, this sounds exactly like NATO. Well, this is the fundamental idea. And the problem is, when the government comes in, and I say the government, I don't mean the political government. I mean a bureaucratic section in some department, whatever it may be, the health department, immigration department, whoever. When they come in to squash your business, they come in with the weight of the state and you stand alone. Mm. And we've realized that what Smokehouse is very good at is finding ways not to be alone. We're a community bar. We've always had a big community around us, just guests, friends, people coming in. But we also understood very well how to do press releases, how to talk to the press, how to do social media. What we think of, and the way we brought this to the association was saying, nobody should be standing alone. If you get hit by something, you need to be able to pick up the phone and call somebody. And so we call this our first call resource. It's like, whatever it is, it could be the government's trying to shut me down or I need to buy a new chair. Don't care. Yeah. Call us. We will route you to somebody who can help. And this type of called collective security, collective approach, community, really it's just community support. It's really just community support. This is the way we envision going forward in Moldova as to how any company can defend themselves. And I have been, I will just tell you honestly, I have been approached and my partner Vlad has been approached far too many times by companies that got themselves into an ugly, ugly fight with somebody in the government. Many times they call the anti-corruption police, the anti-corruption police arrest or, or find the entrepreneur, not the corrupt official. Really? And by the way around? That's exactly how it works. And at that point, <laughs> They do a little Googling and they find us and they come in and they talk and, and I have to tell them, like, I don't know how to solve your legal problems. I've never had to go to court with this company. We beat them in the, the, the court of public opinion before they try to take us to court. That's very interesting. And the, the thing is, once you're in court, I'm like, I can recommend lawyers. I, I know some great law firms. I have some friends. But the lost best, it. right, but the best thing to do is beat them before they drag you into the system. You've really got to know what you're up against early and, and do whatever you can as fast as you can. So this is what we do with the association. Um, 
What, is it sort of a naming and shaming and just getting it out into the no, public actually, sphere as quickly as possible? No, no, no. It's actually quite different. So we're very constructive. So we're a member of the Prime Minister's Economic Council. We're members of the Advisory Councils on Customs and Food Safety. But, but a bunch of different areas. We actually have a professional staff. We're a legally registered NGO association. The staff goes and they sit on these things and they, they understand the problems coming down the pipe. They consult with the businesses and they go back and, and lobby back. But our community that we form, the community is less about naming and shaming than it is about sharing experience. Sharing experience, everything from a shoulder to cry on to being able to bolster you when you've got a problem. But whatever the case, once you get into an area, you know you're not by yourself. The first few fights we had at Smokehouse, we were absolutely alone as a business. We had some friends that we could call up that had lived here longer, knew things, you know, could suggest stuff. But as a business, we never knew anybody who went through what we did. Now I know lots of people who did. Some who have suffered much more and fought even harder. You know, leaving a little restaurant alone and shit, we're small pickings for these corrupt officials, you know? Right. But some, some companies are bigger targets and juicier targets. And getting everybody just be together, understand what's going on, and share experience. Everything from a good media strategy to a good lawyer, you know, it's the difference. It really is the difference. Now, one thing I'm always interested by on the Facing Up podcast is the personal challenge, that personal struggle. There must have been days when you were by yourself, you know, as a company with Smokehouse, probably where it either felt incredibly difficult or it felt perhaps even impossible. Yeah. What got you through those days? <sighs> I can take a, I can take it. One of our darkest times was um, a really big fight. I alluded to it earlier. We were talking about a fight with the uh, local government on our licenses and stuff in, in 2018. And uh, that fight wasn't short. It was a long negotiated pecking thing. Then a, uh, fire all the cannons and uh, then a brutal month-long drag out before we got the, gov- the high government and the mayor and everybody to intervene and, and settle things. I will tell you in that time, first of all, the most important thing was uh, you know, my, my wife, Yulia, helped me get through, kept me sane and absolutely kept me grounded and organized, you know, my own thoughts, but maybe less sentimentally, but also more direct to the fact that we're on a podcast. I love podcasts. I'm a podcast about I listen to podcasts all the time. That, well, two weeks at least out of that month, I couldn't listen to the, the normal podcasts I do. Politics, economics, whatever. I just couldn't add an iota of stress into my life. And hearing whatever Donald Trump said in the morning, I couldn't handle it based on what I had. You know what I did is I retreated into listening to really great long historical podcasts, the history of Rome, something like that, and just distracting, calming yourself down in your personal life, making sure everything was just as good as it could be, and you come into work and you take the gloves off and then be back in the fight. And yeah. that was a, it was a vicious fight. And, uh, and we won it. But that time, that absolutely does get to you. It gets you personal. Mm. It gets in your head. It gets in your home. And as you mentioned at the start, Maya Sandu, she's now the president. 
President-elect. President-elect, yes, and she's been elected president just a few days ago on a anti-corruption ticket. What do you see the future of, not just Smokehouse and Taproom, but mm-hmm. small businesses here in Moldova being? I think Maya Sandu will have four years in presidency with a great bully pulpit mm-hmm. to go up and talk about what ought to be. Yeah. And what I really hope from from her ascendancy to the presidency and going forward is that we start hearing in Moldova a good conversation about not what is, but what ought to be. Um, there's no reason this country should be poor. Yeah. This country chooses to be poor. Not the people, absolutely not the people. People here work very, very hard and are very smart and industrious. Absolutely. But yeah. the political system and the systemic corruption has been trapping people in a place. So I'm hopeful, but we'll see how it goes. Well, on that note, I'm hopeful too. It sounds like everyone I've spoken to feels that this is going to be a step in the right direction. As you know, Dave, every guest I ask three questions because I kind of want to know where to travel, know what to listen to, and have an idea of what I should be reading before I go to bed. So where is your favourite or most significant place? My wife and I recently bought a small, very little, old, run-down village house on the Nistru River, um, about 30 minutes outside the city. And I think a big part of my favourite place, I'd say, is Moldova, but it is maybe the countryside. And I live in a bustling city. We heard the ambulances go by earlier. I've got grumpy neighbors in my apartment who don't like where I take my dog out and whatever. And every time I go out into the village, I just meet the loveliest people, the salt of the earth. I love small towns, and we're building what will be a bed and breakfast out there, and I think uh, that this is really just a place I love. It sounds idyllic. Your favorite piece of music? My favorite piece of music is, is from my favorite band, which is Queen. I love Queen, and my favorite song by them is, uh, and I probably butcher it because it's from Japanese, but it's Teo Toriate. And um, it's one of their, not as popular, it's not a hit, but I, I love the song because they, they talk about in the song basically how people need to stand together in communities. Let us stand together as the years go by. And there's a refrain about trying to keep the candle lit. And I don't know what in the world they were writing about, but uh, what I've always thought it to be about is the idea that by being together in, in a community, by having people come together, you can, you can let's say, prolong and, and keep lit this candle of, of what we all can be and where we, where we could be together. And we keep uh, away the darkness. And unfortunately, I think 2020, we've had quite a year of a lot of darkness mm. i love this song because i think it calls to some of the best of our nation and your favorite or most significant book my favorite book is john steinbeck's east of eden so i don't know if you've read it but um you know some people travel the world and they keep uh put the bible on their bedside before they go to bed <laughs> for me i always i keep east of eden with me it's a big book to walk around with but i always have it um it's a it's a really beautiful novel. It talks about um, it really follows the trials and tribulations of a family, and in that family, you have every possible problem from 
parents who are not the best parents and don't quite know what to do to different community problems and it is I think a beautiful story about humanity and how we adapt to the problems we have and again how we're called to be our best selves even though we aren't always it sounds like a you know both your piece of music and, and your book it's about appealing to the best in, in human nature yeah I think that that probably should be all of our higher focus uh, it doesn't mean it doesn't need to be everybody's favorite book but like if if we could all think a little bit more about that we could go a long ways and um, looking at Moldova I love this country and I have great hopes for this place and being a member of this community now for over eight years, I can see how it could be with the best of people and I can see the best of people around me, but I can see sometimes some of the worst of people are succeeding and uh, that is a question of hope. Well, here's to the best Moldova. That's right. Cheers. Thanks so much for joining Thank the Facebook you. Podcast. And that was my conversation with Dave of The Smokehouse and Taproom in Chisinau. I really hope that you enjoyed the conversation and a little flavour of some of the people that I have been meeting on the road. One of the things I'm suddenly going to take away from this conversation is the power of mobilising popular opinion. And I think that can be seen in many different spheres, but it seems to be no less true if you're a small business. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Facing Up. I really hope that you enjoyed it and that you join us for next week's episode. Please do subscribe, share, rate, rave about this to all your family and friends and even your colleagues and randomers in the street. I would love it if this podcast were to reach as many people as possible. And until next week, goodbye.